dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. Today, it's fashionable to separate the church from society. We claim that the legitimate separation of church and state means that the state should proceed without any influence from the church. The church, however, has a different opinion. How are we to evaluate the value of the Catholic Church's contribution to our society? What impact can the world really expect from the Christian message? What's the value of the culture that we're proposing? All of these questions are central to the discussion about how Jesus raises us up to lead our culture today. Well, all right, so I decided to take on the big issue of cultural leadership. How do the Catholic Church and Christians in general are called to influence the culture for Christ? And when I started this series, I, I did it with trepidation because there are so many podcasts and, and pundits and voices out there, each one of them giving these opinions that are wonderful, of course. And, we're, you know, it's, it's like the cultural war ends up becoming a media war of whoever gets to say their opinion the loudest. But even then, if you start looking at the, the views, for example, and the actual impact of those messages, if you were to get even a million views on a YouTube thing, you, you'd be really happy. Or if a million people listen to your podcast, that'd be pretty good, right? But I mean, if you get a hundred million to listen to it, you'd be you know off the charts with success. And yet think about it, that's, only, that's less than a third of the population even hearing, let alone agreeing with what you're saying. And so I think it's important that we say, yes, these messages are very important, but we don't forget that, in fact, the message is only as important and only has as much impact as it results in action in the lives of those who listen to it. In other words, it's not just about making grandiose statements that people more or less agree with. It's about shaping action. And see, that's a whole different thing. And I know with my ministry at the St. John Institute, we don't want to just be putting out messages for people to listen to and be entertained by more or less. We want, we want people's lives to change. And so our messaging is, is geared towards bringing you into programs that we then offer. And those programs are geared to changing your life, changing your behaviors. Why? Because if we really want to transform culture, we need to transform the choices that people make in their everyday lives. And that's not just done by messaging. It's not just done by art. It's not by the media. It's done by relationships more than anything else. And a relationship with Jesus Christ will be the most impactful of them all. I mean, if any of you listening right now are able to take Jesus into your heart and soul, turn your back on sin and give your, your, your very being to his service, I mean, the, the cultural transformation will begin all around you. And it'll extend from you and the influence that your real decisions and real actions make and to the whole society that's waiting for it. I, I, you think about all the people that you impact directly. I mean, who, who do you impact? You got your children, your wives, your, your friends, your workplace. Okay. What if those people were all suddenly impacted through your relationships 
and influence through your relationships to make decisions that in turn will bring the values of Jesus effectively into their culture. I mean, one life can impact 10,000 and each one of those lives can impact others that are near them. I guess what I'm saying is that we got to stop just trying to tear down straw men of arguments and, and creating us and them dichotomies in our psychology and in our world, in our communications that, that end up becoming, we're really creating a hostile environment and instead try to transform things where they're really transformed. And that is in the way that we interrelate with one another and the decisions that we make. I mean, the way that we decorate our house, the way that we drive on the road, the, fun, the, the places that we donate our money to, the way that we host dinner parties, the quality time that we have with our children. I mean, the number of families that, get, that lament the change in culture by themselves not even spending quality time with their kids or nearly enough of it, well, it, it, it's the vast majority. We, we end up thinking that whoever's going to make the newest YouTube channel is going to somehow win the culture war. And I think that's a real error because that's not how Jesus did it either. When Jesus wanted to transform the culture of his day, which of course he did from one of paganism and tyranny and all these different things to the beautiful freedom of the church, he did so by creating relationships with 12 men and then in charging those 12 men to pass on that relationship around them by giving the love that they'd received from him to one another. And, and in that love, which of course is not just emotions, but is actions and choices and cultural dispositions and values that all support Christian love, well, you have a new culture that's born. And then that culture gets endorsed by the political power of its day through Constantine when he adopted it into the Roman Empire. And then it's never stopped growing. And this balance between church and government over the fight for the values of the hearts of the people. So there's a place for opinions and, and for you know, commentary and all that stuff. But I, I think that the real heart of things has got to be when you realize that you are in charge of the culture that you have a power in your home, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your friendships, that no political pundit, no talk show host, no podcast could ever, ever have. It's the power of a witness that comes with the authenticity of your heart through the real bond of friendship that you share with that person that impacts that person more heavily than anything else. When was the last time, for example, that you invited one of your friends to church? And I mean that, like, think about it. Like, well, I bet for most of you, it's never. I bet you've never invited a friend to church. I mean, it's just gonna, I'm just going to go out there. I mean, the number of times, and I really want you to think about it. At least since college, have you even thought of it? And yet you go every single week. This is, I mean, it, there's no sport team, for example, uh, that has the same amount of power over a population as the Catholic church. We have, you know, millions of Catholics every Sunday of their life and Holy Days of Obligation going to Holy Mass. And yet it's funny that we all wear the, the jersey of the sport team. We don't even think about it, you know. <laughs> and, we, and, we, and, you know, we would be happy to give tickets to people to join us at the sporting event. But, but, but we could go to Mass every single Sunday and never even invite everybody. That's what I mean by, like, the, the real transformation through relationships and the influence. If you were to invite your friends or even your enemies, for, you know, for that matter, to come with you to Mass, and even if one of them were, you would make more gains to transforming a culture than you would by spouting all kinds of opinions at every possible Thanksgiving dinner party that you would have for the rest of your life. You can be more effective 
when you ground what you're doing if the real target, which is the small immediate goals of the people that you relate with, knowing the beauty of your faith. And when we do that, we elevate the culture. Sometimes people are embarrassed to do this. And I just want to point out, like, you shouldn't be embarrassed. Here's why. Christianity does not represent a culture in any way inferior to the culture that's out there now. Okay, the Christian culture is nothing to blush about. I mean, our culture represents family dinners. It represents sharing equally. It represents welcoming uh, children born with handicaps or with developmental disabilities into our schools and into our lives. It means never drawing a limit when it comes to the beauty of life from womb to the tomb. I mean, like, how could this possibly be less of a, a, a beautiful culture than anything else? I mean, a culture that celebrates the human soul, that says that man was made for the infinite, that the human family is the cell of society called to radiate a divine love of God effectively into every corner of the world. How could this in any way be something we would want to blush about? And yet we do. Yet we, do. we don't even invite people to mass. We don't put crucifixes up in our living rooms. We don't pray a family rosary. And I just want to challenge you for a second because I'm like, why not? Why not? When you're not acting really as a Christian, how are you acting? I mean, you're out acting in somebody's style. It might just be the style that's fashionable in the world today. I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, we need to be stylish. We need to also like fit in. I get it. But like, is, is there any spot where we take the world as it is and we breathe the beautiful breath of the Holy Spirit upon it? Something new that we could also share with our friends and with our neighbors, that brings a different perspective. I think this is really where our mission gets real, and it's the mission that Jesus sent us to accomplish. Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. When we talk about evangelizing a culture, let's be real clear about what we mean. And sometimes the best way to talk about what we mean is to say what we don't mean, okay? What we don't mean is a condemnation of the culture. I mean, you might have to say things as they are, put things in the right place, yes or no, black and white about certain things, but that always needs to be within the perspective of a dialogue around how that culture was trying, in fact, to express something good and something even holy in, in a way that was wrong or that was off-putting or that would, you know, missed the point, but that had this fun foundational tension. And it's important to get in touch with that because on the one hand, we can, we can slice and dice ideas all day long. And I can admit as a Catholic priest, this is something Catholic priests tend to be really good at. We tend to be really good at taking ideas and then just knocking them all around. But we forget that, in fact, people seldom encounter ideas in such abstract purity. In fact, most of the time, those ideas that we like to, in fact, you know, dismiss are, are held by our friends, our relatives, by people that we love in ways that are confused, intermingled with emotions and senses of identity and, and other things that make a, the, a purely abstract dissection of an idea uh, almost an injustice to the truth of the idea as it's held by someone that we hold dear. And because of that, the dialogue of a lot of us Christians who are talking about culture falls on deaf ears. 
because we just sound judgmental. And of course, it's the same way if opinions come from non-Christian sources. Uh, they can sound haughty, dismissive. They can sound arrogant, right? Anytime you take a truth and you abstract it out from the reality of the, the people that hold it, in a, with you know, a mixed levels of understanding, with different intentions expressed, you, you end up making yourself and your commentary something that is harsher than the reality will allow. And what happens when, that, when that's the case? What happens is that then when you end up criticizing that position, you sound like you're rejecting a person. And people who love other people and love the people that you sound like you're rejecting will then respond, not intellectually, but viscerally and emotionally. And we get nowhere. So there, there's definitely a place for academic discussion and for abstract, you know, dealing with thoughts. But in the dialogue of an actual evangelist, you need to re always remain constant with the human heart of the person that you're talking about or the group that you're talking about. Because there, that group, that heart, that community is never just holding an abstract idea. They hold it within the context of values, values that are good in and of themselves that you could then say are misguided, misordered, miscalculated. Okay, you might say all kinds of things, but you need to first of all recognize that they are values. And, and then in the context of those values, you're able to speak about truth as they see it empathy for your listener is not just important for sales okay you need to have it if you're going to sell anything you need to have it if you're going to fundraise you need to have it if you're going to manage a, pe a person and you also need to have it if you're going to effectively bring the gospel into a group of people who are acting in a way antithetical to it i don't have in other words enemies of the gospel i have potential friends it's the exact same way. If you've got to sell ice cream and you walk around telling people that, you know, they won't want your product because they're stupid, well, they're never going to buy the ice cream. <laughs> the very first thing you need to do if you want to sell ice cream is look at everybody from the angle of how they need that ice cream and how you can present that ice cream to them in a way that's going to meet their needs. It's called Sales 101, and that messaging is at the heart of our evangelization. I am approaching the culture, in other words, trying to understand empathetically how that culture is striving after happiness so that I can meet it there and then bring it through a purification process to show how the real way that they can find the happiness that they so desire is by surrendering to God. So you see, there's two poles that you got to hang on to at all times. And this goes the same, by the way, for, you know, transforming a culture at large in our society to, to working in the culture in your family. I mean, you got it. How, why are my kids acting this way? What is my teenager trying to discover? You could ask them that question. And of course, they'll never know. They'll never tell you. But if you listen through their body language, listen through what they spend their time with, listen to their questions, read their poetry, try to understand their music from the inside, you're going to see what they're looking for. And then empathizing with that, you're able to connect them into a process, of course, that can purify things, correct things, get things that are out, that are actually getting in the way from them, actually achieving their goals, but which is foundationally a positive thing of bringing them to where they can find the fulfillment of what they're looking for. And of course, we know that that's in Jesus Christ and in the gospel, and we're confident of that. And that's the other pool that we got to constantly keep our hand on. 
And that's that our confidence that God and the Christian message is a positive message to heal, to bless, and to uplift our world. Sometimes we lose track of that, honestly, because we, we get a sh grow ashamed of it ourselves. We don't really know what we're selling, so it's impossible to sell it to anyone. We're not quite sure that what we have in the church has value. And so we don't propose it as if it was valuable. And just remember, whenever the light doesn't shine, darkness grows and something else will come to replace the church in our world as the arbiter of values and as the one who guards and safeguards the heart of society. And this is what I want you all to become really convinced of. When you say that you're a Christian, you are not saying that you don't belong to the world, but you're also not saying that somehow the world's understanding of itself doesn't need you. You actually place yourself as a Christian in the role of a hero, of a savior, of a healer, of a leader. Now, always in connection with and understanding the deep motions uh, with empathy of the culture that you're trying to penetrate. And yet at the same time, you got to have a sense of your own value. So this is, I mean, like a parent, for example, who's not sure about the, why they're doing what they're doing towards their kids will eventually give up the fight, stop parenting, and just let the kids run the house. Right? It's the same way with the church. So my challenge for you, what value does the Catholic Church actually bring? Does the Christian message, does the gospel of Jesus Christ bring? Can you name it? Can you tell me why the whole world should be Christian? And now don't just say so that we're saved. Okay, that's good. But like, I want it in concrete measures. Like what does salvation look like when it comes to the day-to-day -day living of an average person in America? Can you show that? Okay, and that, that's the challenge. But that's the vision that's going to enable us to make effective plans towards cultural leadership. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org slash member and join for free today. All right, so leading a culture is more than just condemning and it's more than just having ideas about what's right or wrong. It's actually looking at the pathway a culture can take towards its own fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so the, the very first thing I've got to become really convicted of in my heart is having a real concrete vision for how Jesus Christ really represents a positive change that I need to propose to the culture I'm trying to communicate with. Right? So what does that look like? How, how does the message of Jesus literally transform lives? Well, here I just want to give you some insight because as a Catholic priest, I've got a lot of insight on this question, okay? And remember this, the cell of all of society is the family. It's not the individual's heart or individual's freedom because that individual heart and freedom comes from a family. The wellspring that's constantly being renewed of a world is in the little babies that a family produces and then the values in which they rear those lives. It's that initial education from zero to 18 that will shape the future course of, of a society. I mean, think of it this way. If you live to be 90, right, what you receive from one, zero to 18 ends up being given out. Your character, your foundational identity has an impact 
for five times the lifespan of that initial 18 years. So by the time you're 18, you're only 20% through the impact of your life. And yet how much of your character has already been formed? I mean, I mean, nearly everything. You have your roots. You have your understanding of yourself, your basic philosophy of life. You've, you've incorporated the, the world around you into a world within you that to govern, be governed by an inner law so that your choices are already being made according to a value system that comes. Where, where are you from zero to 18? You're in your family. All right. So if we want to begin the cultural understanding is to say, a family that has the values of Jesus Christ in it represents a treasure for the world. Here are three reasons why. Number one, according to the values of Jesus Christ, every individual in the family is absolutely unique, irreplaceable, and of inestimable value. This means that I can never act as if a single person in the family didn't contribute in a, a, an infinitely beautiful way to the value of the identity of the family as a whole. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that if we take that same value and we extrapolate that into our society and we start looking at every individual as being priceless in value, how many talents, how, many, how much drive, how much leadership will the citizens of that society begin to give? I mean, you could do all kinds of psychological studies around teamwork and the understanding of how each person understanding their role on the team and their value on the team will end up increasing their productivity exponentially and help the entire team to reach its goal, right? Well, what if we did that in our society? What if every single person realized the value and we put our people first? Just like in a business, if you put your people first, your profit will increase. Well, a, a society, a, a culture, that says our goal is the value of our people, oh my goodness, it'll be a nation that's bound, you know, by deeper bonds than any economy could ever forge. You know what I mean? And it's like we're living suddenly for something that's incredible. We would have a dynamism, a morale, a sense of self. Well, that would, well, would make a huge impact for the benefit of the rest of the world, right? And where does the nation get that? It gets that from the family. Where does the family get that? It gets it from Jesus Christ, from the, from the tradition of the Bible, from the understanding and teaching that God is at the origin of every member of the family, and therefore God is at the origin of every member of society. And therefore, that member of society has inalienable rights that need to be respected, enhanced, embraced, and given as a gift to the world. Okay, see, that, that's a Christian worldview. You can't, you can't find that same foundation without Christ, or at least without God. I mean, when you take religion out of the perspective, what's going to guarantee that same understanding? Absolutely nothing. And history has shown it time and time again. When you have an atheistic form of government, you and an atheistic culture, the value of the rights of the human person are mitigated. It suddenly the rights are no longer absolute because the state itself becomes the end goal. And we got to be very careful, of course, when that happens. Second amazing reason why the, the, the Christian family concretely that's based in God is advantageous for our world is that a Christian family has a perspective that the family is for the service of others. Now, not just in a banal sense or in an arbitrary sense, meaning that some government decided to say that because it was useful, but in a sense that's rooted in the very nature of how it looks at itself. 
A Christian family, in other words, says that, yes, God made me beautiful and inestimable value, and I have an individual relationship with him, but then he summoned me to love my brothers and sisters as God loves me, to honor my mother and my father as if they represented God in the household, not that they are God, but that I am called to respect my parents as I'm called to revere God, right? So it's like not in the same level, but then again, it's related. And in that, in that perspective, look what the family represents. It represents this place of harmony where each person is called. No one is allowed to be left behind in a Christian household. You're to be, you're to be lifted up and supported, not according to do what you do that's wrong. You're to be corrected when you do what's wrong, but you're to be supported even in the correction as we are moving together towards a higher goal. What the Christian family gives to the society is this perspective that there is a higher goal to be attained and that we can move towards that higher goal. I mean, don't we want this? Because if we don't have a higher goal outside of ourselves, something spiritual to live for, of value, we're going to end up imploding under the weight of narcissism and a purely materialistic conquest of the world. And yet we all put that in a family. Imagine a family that was all materialistic and selfish, individualistic. They'd split apart. Yeah, well, it'd be the same thing for a culture. And the Christian family comes in to say, no, it's about love. And if we can have that message resound in our fabric of our society, our nation would be better for it. The third place where our Christian worldview impacts the family positively and represents, therefore, a positive gain society is in the fact that in the family, you embrace all of the deepest mysteries of life, especially the mysteries of life and death. There's no moment of a human life that the family isn't equipped to sanctify, celebrate, and ordain towards a truth that is greater than itself and transcendent, right? And this is the power of a Christian worldview. It's that in our worldview, families are not utilitarian and they're not things that they're purely arbitrary. They're the place where the human life is connected not only to each other, but to a past and to a future. And in that, when that's held as sacred and the Christian family says that that past belongs to a God and that the future belongs to God, we now have a reason to give birth and a reason to hope in the face of death. And we can bequeath that same vision to the world that embraces it. In all these ways, in the concrete of a Christian family, we see like lived out loud what I'm talking about. There is nothing to blush about a Christian culture. On the contrary, the Christian culture is a cause for boasting, and we need to propose it positively as a contributing element to the world that we wish to create and live in for the future. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at communications at stjohninstitute.org. That's communications at stjohninstitute.org and visit www.stjohninstitute.org and sign up for our newsletter to receive updates from Father Nathan.